Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters. Earth Matters brings you environment and social justice stories. Today's story was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX, Canberra, on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm back, Horridge. There's a a kind of rising tide of outrage, really, at what's going on in what are publicly owned native forests. They're our forests. They're not the logging industry's forests. This story was to be a call-out to stop a forest being logged. The biodiverse and historic corn trail. Joss from Friends of the Forests tells us about the corn trail. The Corn Trail is between Braidwood and Nilligen and it's an iconic historic walking trail which is adjacent to Monga National Park. But when Monga National Park was created, two logging compartments were left out and they're next to the bottom section of the Corn Trail. So the Corn Trail originally was a Ewan travelling route from the Tablelands down to the coast and then more recently settlers used it to transport corn from the coast up to the Tablelands, hence its name. Now it's used for pack riding, mountain bike riding and bushwalking. You're walking through just an incredible rainforest valley, especially this bottom section. You just see the tallest cabbage tree palms I've ever seen, and not just one or two, but groups of them. And you you can look across for hundreds of metres, but you're looking across to the National Park. So when you're walking down, if you looked onto the South Hillside, 50 metres from the Corn Trail is the logging compartment boundary, and all those gum trees that you see, the silvertop ash and the mountain grey gums, they're in the logging compartment and they'll be taken down. It sounds so beautiful and on the tourist route. But wait, as I made this story, I saw on Friends of the Forest Facebook page that the chainsaws had already started. What's more, my favourite forest critter, the spotted quoll, had been seen there. Joss, you gave me a flyer for the Stop the Logging on the Corn Trail and it had this amazing picture of a quoll looking at the camera. Are there quolls in Monga? Uh, yes, there are spotted quolls in Monga National Park and there's also a spotted quoll record in the logging compartment which should trigger a, a protection zone. The photo that you are referring to was provided by David Gallen. David just won a, an international award for a spotted quoll photograph that was taken in Monga National Park. For us to trigger the 12-hectare exclusion zone... It's not enough to just have a record there. We have to find the maternal den site or the latrine site and they live in very dense vegetation. So David, when he took this series of photographs, it took him six months to locate the quoll and then three weeks to take the series of photographs. So it's not something that we can necessarily do and they're just ignoring the fact that there is is a spotted quoll record that's already been put on the bioatlas that's appeared on their desktop analysis. And what's the status of the spotted quoll? My understanding is it's vulnerable in New South Wales and endangered on a federal basis. I 
I've got the um, harvest plan map here and it's got some of the species listed. Forestry do do a, an ecologist survey, but our understanding is that usually it's only 15 hours and it's just based on the, the existing roads because this is extremely steep and dense forest. So, of course, if you've got the spotted tail quoll record, glossy black cockatoos, there's a feed tree there and that'll just trigger protection of that actual tree. Gang Gang to Eastern Pygmy Possum, that has actually triggered an exclusion zone, probably the only one in the whole compartment. So around that record of the Eastern Pygmy Possum, there's a 100 metre exclusion around that tree. Golden Tip Bat and a Sooty Owl, but I mean there needs to be more surveying done because there's likely to be um, other owls, powerful owls, mast owls. The large forest owls trigger a wider exclusion zone. Too late to do any more surveys now, eh, forestry? Despite opposition, Karuna Forest near Mystery Bay on the south coast, New South Wales, also recently got the chop. Locals, tourists and ecologists were aghast to learn of logging next to a sea lake in sea eagle habitat. They protested and campaigned and did manage to save some critical patches they identified in citizen ecological surveys. Here's Liz from Friends of the Forest. What's happening in the state forests is that many species are protected either at a national level or at a state level. The uh, federal government has signed agreements with the international community about protecting species and making sure that these uh, species do not become extinct. The problem we have when it comes to state forests is that they have an exemption from protecting the species. So when it comes to issues such as the spotted quoll, which Joss has referred to, the spotted quolls are found in the corn trail and forests that Joss is trying to protect. The problem is that uh, forestry have a licence that says that they only have to watch out for those animals in certain conditions. So, for example, we found a masked owl at um, Karana Forest. We photographed it with um, night cameras and we alerted forestry to its presence immediately that we found it. In response, forestry actually did nothing. Some of the legislation indicates that that should have resulted in a 300-hectare exclusion zone. It actually resulted in the community being locked out of the forest to prevent us from finding further information, such as the nests. We've become a bit cynical. Through our last year's work, looking at the logging around the Mogo tourist village, anything that we found that we reported, we found that forestry had a reason to wriggle out of. One of the problems we have is that we find these animals, uh, as citizen scientists and people who care about our local forests, we're going in and spending months and months surveying the forest. Forestry Corporation, as Joss has said, they don't actually necessarily enter the forest. They do what's called a desktop survey. At Corona, they actually did 70 hours of desktop surveys, but at the end of that, they didn't understand the forest particularly well. They did not know that there were elkhorns in the forest. They did not know there were epiphytes in the forest. They did not know about several owls that were in the forest that we discovered as citizen scientists. They had not surveyed tree hollows in the way that we have. And and that's a very sad thing in some ways. But on the other hand... We did form a very strong relationship with forestry and we did actually survey parts of the forest together and agreed on on, on certain trees being present so that we could actually make sure that these particular trees were there. This happened because we were running out of time and forestry actually went through the forest with us and marked down at our insistence particular trees that were of a certain size that had particular um, 
features such as tree hollows that we felt needed to be protected. Liz, how did you learn to do all that? How did you find out about forest management? Joss and I are both not forest people. We're not scientists. We're community members. We don't have training and expertise in these areas. So it's a little bit bewildering when we're meeting with ecologists, qualified professional ecologists that are not discovering the same features in the landscape that we are finding just by showing up. We, as a community, we have used Nature Mapper and we have spoken to other people in the community who have shown us what to do. Forestry Corporation, when we discovered a particular owl, they again said, made us jump through all sorts of hoops and said, no, no, that's not the tree that that owl's living in. You go and use this recording equipment and discover where that owl is actually roosting and nesting and then we will look look at looking after that tree for you. So we've actually camped out underneath trees. We've surveyed and measured every tree in the forest. We've gone out with measuring tapes. We've gone out with GPS devices. We've used cameras that have got GPS recording equipment and we've mapped the forest ourselves. What sort of trees must be preserved? The Threatened Species Licence actually details in in great detail what needs to be preserved and what doesn't need to be preserved. It's a very dense, thick, difficult to uh, understand document. So what we have done is we have looked at giant trees and trees over a certain size. Uh, We have checked every tree for nests and hollows and we've marked them. And then we've worked backwards from there to try and say, okay, we want these trees saved and negotiated directly with forestry. You know, the logging industry, and it isn't just forestry, it's the the private contractors who do the forest work. I have heard radio interviews where they say that, you know, someone has said they're subject to thousands of environmental laws, but I will also say that they break thousands of environmental laws because New South Wales has had 8,000 breaches. Even in Mogo, we reported eight breaches, and we just feel there's a mentality that the industry just breaches. There's a logbook at the forestry office, you can look them up. They'll say a tree fell into a buffer area, was only for 15 minutes, so it's a sort of part of the work is to breach. The regional forest agreements were established 20 years ago. They were meant to be a way of protecting ecosystems and allowing the logging industry to continue. But they were flawed from the start as the new national parks that were formed were not big enough to create habitat for some of the targeted species that need a large area like eagles and owls. And more timber than really existed in the forest was promised to the industry. Now 20 years later, the sad consequences are unfolding. Species are at risk and the loggers, trying to fill their contracts with a dwindling supply, are moving into areas where people can easily see what they are up to. To find out more, I talked to the most informed forest campaigner I know. My name's Margaret Blakers and I am a long-time forest campaigner since about the late 1960s when woodchipping and woodchip exports and massive clearing for pine plantations began around Canberra. Margaret, what do you see are the effects of the RFAs, the regional forest agreements, on the ground in the forests now? On the ground, it's meant that the logging agencies just can go for broke. And uh, what you're seeing is vast areas just being shorn of their trees 
and going into more and more controversial areas closer and closer to places that people really actually love and value. And that's why you're seeing these groups springing up all over the place to protect their own patches of forest, whether it's Karana down on the south coast of New South Wales or the Rubicon or Strathbogies or uh, East Gippsland, the Corn Trail um, up near Braidwood, also in New South Wales, the north coast. So there's groups springing up all over the place, also in Tasmania and also in Western Australia. So there's a, a kind of rising tide of outrage, really, at what's going on in what are publicly owned native forests. They're our forests. They're not the logging industry's forests. What's going on in New South Wales, as I said, the regional forest agreements will expire. So the Eden one expires in August next year, I think it is. And then the northeastern New South Wales sometime in the following year. So the logging rules that are currently or were in place expire on the 31st of December this year for most of coastal New South Wales. The first step in doing that was last Friday, Friday afternoon, mind you, very good time for releasing this sort of stuff. The uh, New South Wales government put out the new version of the IFOA, the, the, the logging rules, which makes some very significant changes. What was in place before was bad enough. What's in place as of last Friday is much worse. The kinds of things that it's done is, is allowed for much more intensive logging in the northeastern part of New South Wales. It's also... I think reduced the requirements for for going and looking at what's there before you start logging. So going and doing some proper checks about what type of wildlife might in any given area. The Northeast Forest Alliance describes these final logging rules for public forests as a disaster for old-growth forests, rainforests, river health, threatened species, koalas and global warming. NIFA spokesperson Dylan Pugh said logging will become more intense throughout state forests. Alarmingly, there is a 140,000 hectare clear felling zone from Tyree to Grafton. Stream buffers are reduced, most wildlife protections are removed and there is an intention to open up old-growth forest and rainforest for logging. Darlan Pugh said that the removal of the need to look for and protect koala high-use areas ahead of logging and to increase logging intensity in their habitat would likely lead to the extinction of the koala and other species that live in that ecosystem. Once again, the submissions to the new laws showed the lack of community support for the industry with just 13% of over 3,000 submissions supporting the industry. Clearly, the industry has no social license. And most of our vital headwater streams will have their current measly 10-metre buffer zones reduced to just 5 metres. Mr Pugh said that the National Party has just added another notch to their belt by achieving this major reduction in the logging rules and protections that have applied to public forestry for the past 20 years and that it's a disgrace that they can get away with their environmental vandalism.
It sounds bad. I wish I didn't have to keep reporting this sad stuff, but I guess it's good that Earth Matters covers it. You're with Earth Matters. I'm Beck Horridge. Let's hear some more from Margaret Blakers. What's happening in Tassie? Well, look, the same as in the other four states, except that their regional forest agreement has already been extended to 2037, so another 20 years. And on the basis of five-year supposed reviews, it will just keep on spooling out forever. So basically handing over the forest to the logging industry. I think the regional forest agreement, it's such a big change from what was there previously and so much worse that I think it is potentially challengeable. But in the meantime, um, swift parrot habitat's getting bowled over. The industry's lining up to get into the Tarkine up in the northwest, just doing what it always does across the state. Has there been much logging in the Tarkine yet? They've been nibbling around the edges. The Bob Brown Foundation and others are, are really preparing for a very big campaign to hold out the logging from the northwest. Uh, there was a coop in an area called Laponia in northwest Tasmania where, again, they've got new logging rules but also new rules about protest, very draconian protest laws in Tasmania. And this Laponia coop, it actually ended up in the High Court and uh, Bob and the other person who was part of the action won that court case, which has set back the, the government's attempt to lock out the protesters effectively. Logging in native forests in Australia has been going on at this industrial scale now for 50 years. You know, there's a whole book called The Forest Wars that outlines exactly the story of this assault on our native forests and our wildlife and our water and our climate. If you want to get involved in this last phase of the forest wars, because really, if we don't wrap it up in the next year or so, by 2020, I reckon, then there's not going to be much left worth fighting for. So if you want to get involved, there are lots of groups of different sizes and scattered right across the country. If you go to the One Stop Chop website, which is onestopchop.org.au, then there's a list of groups there that you can get a bit of a sense of whether they're local ones or, or bigger state or national ones, find one that suits you and get involved because I think this campaign, this issue will only be solved if we A, make it national, B, make it big and C, make it loud. We've got elections coming up in um, New South Wales and federally next year. Fantastic opportunity to get involved, have your say and bring this whole sorry tale of, of forest destruction to a conclusion. Like you said, it's been decades now, 30 or 40 years. There's been a very active movement. There's been plenty of surveys yep. show that, that logging and wood chipping in particular don't have a social licence. What is it? Why can't the will of the people ever be manifest? Why can't we ever stop logging and find better ways to use our forests? Is it economics that have us in manacles? What's going on? Look, I, th I think it's, in a way, it's, a, it's almost kind of habit. There's a set of vested interests that are clustered around this industry, this activity. In a way, it's not vested economic interests, it's vested political interests. So you've got um, political parties, so Labour and Liberal, the Coalition and the Labour Party have always been in lockstep on this. So politically, unless you can split them apart, 
it's always difficult. There are some signs that Labor's shifting a little bit, but then they have to deal with the CFMEU. CFMEU is Construction, Forestry, Mining, Maritime, Energy Unions. And the CFMEU is not showing any signs of shifting. So that kind of holds Labor in place. You've then got the bureaucracy in each of the states, which has got its own vested interests in keeping on doing what it's always done. So I think you've got this sort of compacted group of interlocking interests that has kept the industry going, even though it is in no way economic. We're all paying for this and we're not just paying environmentally, we're paying with with good public money that's being poured out, subsidising the bureaucracy, it's uh, subsidising the companies because they don't pay anything like what the, the full real cost of the wood that they're taking should be. For example, in Tasmania, John Lawrence has done an assessment of what used to be Forestry Tasmania's books and found out that the public has paid something like a billion dollars over the last few years to subsidise logging in Tasmania. So it's just a phenomenal drain on the public purse as well as we never pay the full environmental costs and then there's costs that we're also accruing in terms of, for example, water. In Victoria there's work that's been done on the Central Highlands, the ash forests, which are part of the Melbourne's water catchment, and the value of the water is way, way, way more than what's coming out in terms of wood. That's it's incredible. Just, it's just locked in until you can split Labor and Liberal apart, until you can take the CFMEU pressure off then it still remains very difficult to shift. One of the things that locks logging in place in Victoria is the Nippon Maryvale pulp and paper mill. Nippon, which is a Japanese company, uh, bought Australian paper about 10 years ago. It's the company that produces Reflex, the, the office paper that you see all over the place. Well, that office paper has possums and native forests munched up in it. That's what it is. And because it's in the Latrobe Valley, because it's a large concentrated employer, so there's 1,200 people employed there, and alongside all of the coal-fired power stations, which are all going to disappear within the decade because of um, the need to deal with climate change. So governments are quite reluctant to do anything to force Maryvale to go to plantations instead of using native forest wood. So the previous owner went before it was bought by Nippon, had an exit plan for getting out of native forests by 2017. When it was taken over, that plan disappeared out the window and the level of logging now is just as it was 10 years ago when they first started. Victoria has a choice. You either have that pulp and paper mill pulling wood out of native forests or you can have a Great Forest National Park. You can't have both. And the pressure from the CFMEU and others to keep Maryvale logging and to keep it logging native forests rather than replace that wood with that feedstock with plantations has stymied the push for that Great Forest National Park. The wood for Maryvale comes particularly from the ash forests to the east of Melbourne, which is also the source of most of Melbourne's water. So 
what Melbourne is getting is uh, logging that's going to really impact on the water supply for the next 20 or 30 years. Because when you log a forest, the regrowing trees use a lot of water to grow back. And so they're pulling water out of the ground instead of releasing it. An old forest acts like a big sponge. It sort of takes up the water and then releases slowly. And the rivers and springs then flow into the catchment, which then provides Melbourne's water supply. When you log it, the rapidly regrowing young trees suck up masses of water and reduce the water that's available to run off into the dams and therefore to supply the water. Are we in an extinction crisis? Yes, we are. And not just in Australia. Globally, we're in an extinction crisis. And it's time that we turned it around. And in Australia, we've got a whole continent to look after. So stopping these immediately destructive activities like logging, like clearing, is crucial. Beyond that, what we have to do is deal with all the feral animals, deer, goats, horses, camels, cats, you name it, foxes, plus weeds that are running amok as well. Essentially, we have to look look after the bush. The bush won't look after itself, and by bush I mean nature on a continental scale, and I actually mean the oceans as well. The same as anything else, whether it's defending ourselves by buying frigates and goodness knows what, we need to spend large amounts of money on looking after nature. That, I think, is the task of the next year or two, is to really turn public policy on its head, so from an exploitative orientation, from a growth-at-all-costs orientation, to a we've got a responsibility here to nature, both for its own sake, because we have no right to wipe out all the other species, plants, animals, creatures that share this planet with us, but also because unless we do that, we're going to end up with a a planet that's not habitable. Margaret Blakers, thanks so much for talking to Earth Matters. Willy Wagtail and Swift Parrot bird songs you've been hearing are from Listening Earth, their album A Morning in the Australian Bush. You've been listening to Earth Matters. This edition was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX Canberra on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne in Wurundjeri country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. And if you'd like to get in touch with Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page on Earth Matters 3CR Radio. If you'd like to listen to or share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. That's all for today's show. Thanks so much for sharing this time with us. The Earth Matters team will be back next week with more environmental and social justice stories. I'm Beck Horridge. Here's the song of the striped honey eater. <laughs> <laughs>